Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. It's Wednesday, September 1st. From The Recount, this is the News Items Podcast which is based loosely on my newsletter, News Items. I'm John Ellis. Three big things are coming together at high speed that will change the world we live in. Genomics, supercomputing, or quantum computing, to be specific, and artificial intelligence. My guest today, Cade Metz, all but wrote the book on artificial intelligence, its origins, its applications, and its geniuses. His book is entitled Genius Makers. Cade is one of the best technology reporters in the United States, if not the world. He works for the New York Times. We talked to him about his book and where he thinks AI is taking us. Without further ado, here we go. Hello, Cade. Thank you very much for joining us today. Glad to be here. Thank you. So I... Way back when, Dean Acheson wrote an, an interesting book with an incredibly pretentious title called Present at the Creation. You write about being present, the sort of the creation of AI, which begins in your telling with Perceptron. Can you take our listeners through that? Yeah, the, you know, the book centers around this one idea, you know, called a neural network. It's this idea that dates back all the way to the 50s and over the decades never quite worked until it finally comes to the fore in about 2010. And the Perceptron is the first you know, real example of this. It was, it was a, a system built by a Cornell University professor named Frank Rosenblatt in the late 50s using the hardware of the day, you know, a, a large... IBM mainframe computer, he built a system that could recognize printed letters. So a giant letter A or, or a giant letter B printed on a white background. But this was done in a way that would be extremely powerful in decades to come. It was a system that could learn to do that on its own. So Rosenblatt would show this system many examples of a letter A or many examples of a letter B, and it learned from those examples to recognize them. It could identify the patterns that defined an A or defined a B, and that's the way it was able to do this. And that is fundamental to this idea I've been talking about, a neural network. A neural network is a mathematical system 
that can learn skills on its own in that way. Back in the 50s, it was a very simple skill. Can I learn to recognize a printed letter A, uh, an A that doesn't deviate in any way, right? This is not a handwritten letter. It's a printed letter. Frank Rosenblatt's system did that very well, but it couldn't do much more. And people quickly lost faith in this idea. And for various reasons, it was sort of kicked into the dustbin and sat there for a while. But this is this idea would come back to the fore. And it's really at the heart of so many technologies that we now use today. One of the people sort of present at the creation, if you will, was Jeff Hinton. And you open the book with a terrific story. He's published a research paper, I think, in 2012 that has captured the sort of imagination and certainly the attention of major technology companies, Google, Baidu especially. Can you walk us through the research paper and then the sort of bidding war for the idea? Yeah, Jeff Hinton is a remarkable character. So in 1971, when this idea of a neural network was at its lowest point, when most people on Earth thought this idea would never do more than recognize printed letters as it had done under Rosenblatt, Hinton embraced the idea. He was among the few on Earth who continued to work on this idea, and he continued to work on it throughout uh, his career. This idea would sort of ebb and flow and the estimation of other researchers. But Jeff Hinton continued to believe in it until this moment in 2012 when he and his two students built a system around a neural network that could learn to recognize objects in photos. So learn to recognize flowers or cars or people in digital photos. Their neural network could do this in late 2012 with an accuracy that most people thought was not possible. Like there had never been a system that could recognize objects with an accuracy that they showed. And what's remarkable is not only that they built this system, but that instantly so many of the biggest companies on earth recognized the power of this system. Uh, Google, Microsoft, like you said, Baidu in China, one of the biggest internet companies on earth and certainly in China, started bidding for Jeff's services and the services of his two students in real time. You know, Jeff, you know, also in the moment realized how important this idea was and he realized how important it was to these large companies. And he already had a $12 million offer on the table from Baidu but he sort of flipped the situation on its head and said, um, I'm not going to take this offer. I'm going to invite these companies to bid for my services. And there was an auction for his services and the services of his two students in real time while he's in Lake Tahoe at this um, AI conference. And this goes on for days where the amount of money these companies are willing to pay for just three people who have, by the way, no experience in industry goes up and up and up to the point where he essentially sells his you know, his talents and the talents of his students to Google for $44 million. And that price, by the way, was low. Right, Price was continuing to go up and Jeff ended up stopping the auction for various reasons. The auction, he stops at $44 million because why? I mean, Baidu was probably willing to go to 
80, right? They would have done anything to get him. Why did he decide Google at 44? Well, Jeff now admits that he always wanted to join Google. He had spent some time at Google. He'd also spent some time at Microsoft. And and Google, he felt, was the right place for him to do his work. And his students pretty much agreed with him. But it shows you that these are people who believe more in their idea mm-hmm. um, than they do in money, right? Money was not his his primary motivation. This is an idea he's worked on for his entire career, which most of the world thought would never work. And what he's looking for is a place where he can continue to develop that idea. And he felt like Google was the place. You know, one way of thinking about this is that two years earlier, using this same idea, he had built a system at Microsoft to recognize spoken words. This is the technology we now use today when we speak commands into our cell phones, right? Whether it's Siri or some other digital assistant. A neural network is not only able to recognize images, it's able to recognize sounds, Mm -hmm. learn to recognize sounds in the same way. And he had done this at Microsoft. And, you know, Microsoft didn't really have a place to put this technology. They didn't have a phone where you could instantly deploy the technology to millions of people across the globe and make use of it. Google did. It had other internet services where it could make use of the of the image technology that he and his students had demonstrated. This is what now allows self-driving cars, which Google was working on, by the way, and which one of Jeff's students would immediately go to work on. This is the way they recognize um, what's going on on the road around them. They recognize pedestrians with a neural network and stop signs and street markings and whatever else. Google was a company that had the infrastructure to really realize this idea. And that's where he wanted to go. And throughout all this, he he literally couldn't sit down, right? Because he had a flip disc or something in his back. He had terrible back pain and had to either lie down or stand up throughout all this. He's a remarkable person in many ways. I mean, he will tell you that literally he has not sat down since 2007, and that you know the last time he sat down, it was a mistake. He's he's had this back problem for years, and it got to the point where he felt like the only way to manage it, the only way to keep doing the research that would become so important would be to literally stop sitting down. That means he he can't drive a car, can't you know fly on a commercial airline because they make you sit during takeoff and landing. And part of this story, as you see as the book unfolds, is that he's got to he's got to get to places across the continent and sometimes right. across the world to make this idea happen. So he's got to sort of jerry-rig his way, you know, from one one side of North America to another, or across the Atlantic in one case, to get to another key lab in London called DeepMind. One of the interesting things about the book is Google seems to be ahead again and again. And one place they seemed well ahead was in the acquisition in DeepMind. Tell us about DeepMind. And you have, you have a wonderful chapter in the book where you describe DeepMind's defeat of the world champion Go player. Yeah. I mean, for the most part, the, you know, there are these two parallel stories in the book, right? There's, there's Hinton's story. He comes from an older generation that has worked on this idea for for decades. And then you've got the story of DeepMind, which is led by a scientist and, and researcher and entrepreneur 
named Demis Asabas, studying as a neuroscientist in London for many years. He's of a younger generation. Um, he's coming to this idea more recently, and he has his own aims. He wants to take this idea and build what he calls AGI, artificial general intelligence, so a system that can do anything the human brain can do. It's an incredibly ambitious goal, something that that most people do not in the field do not believe is going to happen anytime soon. But that is his stated goal when he builds this company along with two others called DeepMind in London. More immediately, it's able to do things you know, using this idea that a lot of people didn't think would happen anytime soon, including build a system that can beat the world's best players at the ancient game of Go. That was a remarkable moment, certainly something that most people in the Go field, most people in the AI field did not think would happen anytime soon. But DeepMind is also able to attract, you know, talent. There are few people on earth who specialize in this idea at that time. They are able to attract that talent as Jeff Hinton is building his systems. They see the power of this idea. They're hiring people who specialize in this. And because of that, Google comes calling there as well. They end up paying $650 million for DeepMind, this tiny company that was only a few years old. And there's this great moment where Jeff Hinton managed to to, to fly across um, the Atlantic, even right. despite his back problem. But you'll have to read the book for that that amazing tale. But but it's another example of you know these companies being enormously interested in this idea and the few people on earth who specialize in it. One of the things that sort of surprised me was Facebook being a step behind, you might put it. How did Facebook get into the game and become fully competitive? Well, they were among the bidders for DeepMind. They really wanted, as you see in the book, to acquire the company. It wasn't a good fit for various reasons. The founders of DeepMind did not want to join Facebook. They wanted to join Google. You know, in a way, they also wanted to stay independent. They sort of had to join somebody because these companies are so powerful, because these companies have so much money. They were worried that their talent would flee you know, would just be poached away if they didn't join one of these companies. It ended up being Google. And so in that moment, Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg think, well, we've got to build our own lab now. If we can't acquire a a company like DeepMind, we're going to have to build our own. And they go after various people. You know, we're talking about millions of dollars that get spent on just individual people um, in this race to, to build AI. All right, we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. We'll be right back with Cade Metz. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. 
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm here with Kate Metz. There's a famous quote from Vladimir Putin in which he says, whoever controls artificial intelligence will control the world. Where is the government, the U.S. government, in the mix here with Google, Facebook, Microsoft, and to some degree, obviously, IBM and, and others? Are there joint projects? How is the Defense Department, say, or the National Security Agency, how are they playing in this field? It's another major thread in the book. What you see is that because the talent in this area was relatively scarce, because the big companies, commercial companies, these big public internet companies like Google and Facebook and Microsoft are so interested in the talent and because they snap it up so quickly, there's nothing left over for the government, right? Uh, the right. government can't compete with that. And what you see is the talent and the ideas and the technology being built in these public companies and not in government. And that becomes a real concern with a lot of people at the DOD right. and other parts of the government. And there's still this imbalance. And you see a lot of people trying to fix that imbalance, including Eric Schmidt, the former CEO of Google. Right. He has led uh, you know, a, a couple of you know, essentially task forces to try, to try to fix this imbalance, try to figure out ways that you can bring the technology to the government, maybe help the government develop the talent on its own. There's this weird disconnect even between these companies and the government, which you see most notably in this, this effort called Project Maven at the DOD, where they're trying to use this idea to build a system that can recognize objects and drone images. Right. They hire Google, among others, to work on this project you see this real tension develop between Google and the DOD over this project. There are certain employees at Google who are uncomfortable with the company working with the DOD on a, on a technology that could potentially be used for autonomous weapons. And that's indicative of a larger tension between industry and government over this. And it's one of the reasons that a lot of people, are, are including Eric Schmidt, are real concerned the model I, you know, that, that we think of is DARPA and then the internet and then these companies that sort of starts with the government and eggheads at MIT and moves through and then gets out in the public realm. This is uh, reverse. And I think it was Eric Schmidt who led the Pentagon Review of the Future. I can't remember the name of it, but they put out this report, which, as you point out, there's this cultural gap, the 
Googlers are younger, more liberal, more uncomfortable with working with the Pentagon, et cetera. What is Eric trying to accomplish? Is it a meeting of DARPA and Google, or is it the White House and NSA? And what's his path to success, I guess? There are a couple of things. One, he wants to kind of grease the wheels and make it easier for the DOD to work with these kinds of companies. I mean, you're right. Decades ago, you had the DOD working closely with Silicon Valley. But a couple of things have happened recently that have made it more, more difficult. The Edward Snowden situation, where an NSA contractor revealed that the NSA was accessing data at these companies in ways that a lot of people were uncomfortable with in Silicon Valley. This notion of autonomous weapons has made a lot of people in Silicon Valley uncomfortable recently. The DOD has always relied on outside contractors, but you know, in recent years, it's really been these, these very traditional Raytheon style defense contractors, those are not the companies that are building AI. It's being built in startups, these more nimble, more modern companies. And the DOD just does not work well with those companies for various reasons. And so Schmitz and among others are, you know, are trying to grease the wheels there, make it easier for the DOD to work with these types of companies. And you're starting to see that. The other thing he wants to do is change the way the government develops talent like he's even proposed he and his task force have even proposed at like a west point for ai researchers like right. this sort of academy of digital services so that will help the government develop the talent they need in this area what's your sense of the government's understanding of just how powerful these companies have become and therefore sort of untouchable well, I think they're well aware of the the phenomenon, right? We tend to think of Google as an American company or Microsoft. These are these are international companies, and they have a presence all over the globe. Google can go to Canada and make use of that talent, build a new office there. You know, they they made an effort to go to China and build a lab there. Microsoft has long had a presence in China. The concern is that you know the talent will build up in these other countries and not necessarily be available to the US. It's a complicated situation. Like you need to think about this situation differently than we thought about say, you know, Cold War technology and we need to kind of rethink the way things are. Take into account that commercial companies are very much involved here and that they are and that they are global. They're very very much global. One of the themes of, of the newsletter I do is that there are these three disciplines, I guess you would call them, that are coming together to transform life on the planet. One is genomics. We are now at the point where we control the evolution of all living things, and at least in theory, including ourselves. Quantum computing, which everybody recognizes or everybody thinks is years away, but may not be. There seems to be an acceleration of progress there. And then obviously artificial intelligence. All of that coming together, there's a debate about where this is taking us, where AI is taking us with hyperspeed from quantum computing and with the ability to manipulate uh, genes. Tell us about that, what your view of it is, I guess. This is a dispute that you see playing out across the industry, across the AI field. There are some people who very much believe, you know, 
like Demis Hassabis at DeepMind that were on this path to artificial general intelligence and this machine that can do anything the human brain can do and this can end up harming society. We can build a system that then turns on us. And there are just as many people, if not more, in the field who just believe that is just complete bunk and that we're nowhere close to that. Certainly, we don't know how to get there. And I, I do want to underline that. We do not know how to build such a system. That's an aspiration at this point. But that that debate, which is playing out across the industry, is in, best embodied by Zuckerberg and, and Elon Musk. There's this moment in the book where they sit down to dinner to kind of hash out this idea with you know, Elon Musk very much believing that AGI is around the corner. And on the other hand, Zuckerberg um, saying it's not. And there's a lot of disagreement over this. But I, what I do try to make very clear in the book is that this notion that AGI will arrive soon is very much a belief, an aspiration. It's almost like a religion. You get this sort of growing community of people who believe this is going to happen. But technically, we don't know how to get there yet. We have these systems that do very particular things like recognize objects in photos or recognize spoken words or you know, more and more we're getting systems that can understand the nuances of natural language, the natural way that you and I talk. We're having progress in robotics, including self-driving cars. But that is very different from a system that can reason like a human or do anything else that the human brain can do. DeepMind sort of had a, a major breakthrough in proteomics um, recently, got quite a lot of attention in the press. You wrote that story essentially for the New York Times, and I wondered if you could walk our listeners through that. That's a really important result. Um, and you, you might argue that it's the most important result we've seen from this technology, this idea of a neural network, a system that can learn skills on its own. Essentially, DeepMind built a system that can learn the shapes of proteins, which is for those you know who aren't in the field is a very very important thing if you're if you're designing medicines right if you're doing drug discovery right. if you're doing any sort of fundamental biology um you know trying to understand how antibiotics might develop a resistance to medicines this technology can be enormously powerful we have proteins throughout the human body any organism you know who play a role in these types of these types of situations. And we may know what their chemical sequence is, these proteins, but we don't know their physical shape. What DeepMind has done is built a system that can learn to predict the physical shape of, of proteins throughout the human body. And that kind of thing can really accelerate that, that effort to build new drugs or to understand what's happening in the body. That The physical shape Let's us know how you know, one part of the body at the microscopic level binds to another part, mm-hmm. how a drug can bind to parts of the body and help fight viruses, help fight diseases. You know, the, what we've all gone through over the past you know, couple of years with the coronavirus is a prime example. When the next virus comes along, this type of technology might help us not only develop new vaccines, new medicines that can fight this, but it can help us figure out 
what sort of existing medicines we've already developed can be applied to a new situation. You know, this, this is a really, really powerful idea. But this is still something that's used in tandem with human researchers, right? It's a, it's a tool for scientists to use. Um, that's what you're seeing with so many of these technologies. They can help improve and accelerate what, what human experts can do. And that's certainly the case in this field. So how soon will it be for me to be able to say, I want a brand new Substack page that looks a lot like the FT, and then the AI would simply create that for me just on the request? That's the type of thing that this system is particularly good at, right? Is say, just sort of describing something in natural language, Mm -hmm. and it can automatically generate the code and then run the code. So you can say things like, I want a website with a blue background, and boom, there it is. Right. The caveat is that it doesn't work every single time. <laughs> Sometimes there's a, little, there's a little flaw in the code that you need to correct. Sometimes it doesn't work at all, and that's, that's the gap here. You, know, you, you sort of have to roll the dice, and you know, five times out of ten, it is just jaw-droppingly good. The other five, it's not, and that's right. what we're still working towards. I think we'll uh, let you go at that. I I urge uh, listeners to this podcast to buy Cade's book. It's called Genius Makers. I cannot recommend it highly enough. Cade, thank you very much for joining us. We'll hope to talk to you again. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the News Items podcast. The podcast is based on my newsletter, which is available at newsitems.substack.com. News Items is produced by Christian Castro-Rossell, Pierre Bienname, Ali Rogers, and Megan Burney. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby, and our recording engineer was Ben McNamara. Tune in tomorrow for my interview with my old friend and longtime political columnist Joe Klein. We talk about where American politics is today, what happened to the media, and at some length about Afghanistan. We'll see you then. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.